You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual If you could get a shot, a safe shot that cuts your risk of developing a very common and often deadly cancer by 90%, would you get that shot? You would. You listen to my podcast. That means you're a sensible person with good judgment. Maybe you even subscribe. That makes you a super sensible person with unimpeachable judgment. You would definitely get that shot. Now, if you could get your kid a shot, that would prevent your child's chances of developing a common cancer and sometimes a deadly cancer in adulthood, cutting their chances of developing those cancers by 90%, would you get your kid that shot? Of course you would, because you are not a monster. You don't want your kid to suffer and die from what is now an almost entirely avoidable kind of cancer. Or maybe you are a monster and you don't care about your kid, but not even a monster wants their kid to die at age 35 and then get stuck raising the grandkids. So you would still get your kid that shot. I'm obviously talking about the HPV vaccine here, the one you need to get as a kid, a vaccine that protects women and men from the human papillomavirus. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I usually call it the human papillomavirus. That's the virus that causes genital warts and certain kinds of cancer, most notably cervical cancer. Also, penile cancer, anal cancer, throat cancer. The HPV vaccine is safe and it's effective, and we've known that for a long time. Dr. Ina Park came back on the show a couple weeks ago to talk about it, amongst other things. But a blockbuster new study came out in the UK last week, a study that documents, really for the first time, documents just how many cases of cancer the HPV vaccine is preventing there and how many lives it's saving and could save all over the world if everyone got vaccinated against HPV and got vaccinated young. Adult women, the study found, who got the HPV vaccine between the ages of 12 and 13, women who are now in their 20s, had rates of cervical cancer 87% lower than the rates experienced by women who weren't vaccinated. Not a lot of women in their 20s get cervical cancer, but 50 women who weren't vaccinated got cervical cancer in the study compared to just five who were vaccinated. Cervical cancer rates were lower by 62% for adult women who were vaccinated between the ages of 14 and 16, and 35% lower for women who were vaccinated between the ages of 17 and 18. The number of cervical cancers in the UK, without everyone having been vaccinated, the number of cervical cancers have been cut by more than half. And again, that's without everyone being vaccinated. If everyone was vaccinated against HPV, boys and girls all over the world, and vaccinated by age 12, cervical cancer in women could be very nearly eliminated, along with many penile cancers in men and anal cancer in men and women, and cervical cancer in men who have cervixes, and penile cancer in women who have penises, because some women have penises and some men have cervixes, and lots of lives, that's the message here, lots of lives, men's lives, women's lives, cis lives, trans lives, could be saved through vaccination against HPV, if everybody got vaccinated. But we're at a dicey moment for vaccinations, culturally and politically. It's like we all woke up one day to find out that the lunatic anti-vaccine movement championed by left-wing wellness idiots got wasted one night and had a meth-fueled threesome with the right-wing anti-science movement and the right-wing anti-sex Christian movement 
a movement that long opposed the HPV vaccine's development or being rolled out, opposed it from the get-go because the HPV vaccine protects people against a virus transmitted primarily through sexual activity, and right-wing Christians think people who have sex should get cancer and die. And anyway, this threesome from hell somehow led to the birth of a real monster. Because it's not just new COVID vaccines these people are refusing to get for themselves and their kids these days, but any vaccines at all. There's an effort in Texas, a growing effort in Texas, 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 good fucking Lord, Texas, to prevent schools from requiring that kids be vaccinated against anything at all, including things kids have been required to get vaccinated against for decades. Childhood diseases that used to kill thousands of kids every year. The measles, the mumps, chickenpox, polio. Make iron lungs great again. So, the good news about the HPV vaccine, the good news in this study out of the UK that you can read more about at The Lancet and The Guardian, it's almost canceled out by the awareness that these are dark days or dim days because there are just so many dim people out there, so many dimmies. But more good news? The smart people out there can protect their kids from kids who are unlucky enough to have dimmies for parents by having their kids vaccinated against HPV. Even if your vaccinated against HPV kid fucks around with a dimmies unvaccinated against HPV kid, a, a kid who was victimized by his dim-witted parents and deserves our sympathies, even if your kid messes around with one of their kids, your kid will be protected. If your kid, boy or girl, or... NB gender refusenik if your kid is vaccinated against HPV by age 12. Get on it, mom and dad. All right, coming up on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and the triumphant return of one of my favorite regular guests of all time, Nancy Hartunian. We talk about how hard it can be sometimes to say no. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. Urogynecologist Dr. Ian Fields joins me to give advice to a woman who gets aroused when her bladder is full. She wonders what's up with that. Dr. Fields has the answer. All that coming right up. Hi, Dan. This homoflexible man here in my mid-30s, Midwest currently, just want your thoughts on the situation I'm in. I have a friend. He's about 20 years older than me, and I've known him since I was 10 years old. He and I aren't technically related but our siblings are married. Both of us are gay. I'm out. He is too, but he's more discreet, especially with our families. I've had a crush on him since my teens. About five years ago, I told him that I wanted to pursue a romantic relationship with him, and he shut me down pretty quickly. He still saw me as a child at the time, and he shared that he respects my family too much to date me. My family has expressed to me that they don't really care. Since I brought it up to him at that time, I've brought it up again a couple of times. One time I made a move and he didn't exactly push me away. I think we would be a great couple and I think he's more interested than he's willing to admit. We hang out a few times a month. I'm not really totally hung up on him, but every now and then the thought does cross my mind to make another move. At the same time, I think it's better to just let it go and just move on and accept that it's never going to happen. Really interested to hear your thoughts. You're in your mid-30s now. You say you brought this up. You told this man 
who's 20 years older than you are that you've known since you were 10 years old, you told him five years ago that you'd had a crush on him for decades. You told him then when you were 30 that you'd had a crush on him for decades. And what he told you was that he still saw you as a child. That may be true. He may still see you even in your, even when you were 35 years ago, even now in your mid thirties, he may still see you as a child and have no interest in you. Or he may have said that, Hey, I still see you as a child in the same way that people say it's not you, it's me, or I'm not interested in a relationship right now, or it's not the right time. I'm busy at work. It could have been a face saving, your face saving, ego sparing, your ego sparing white lie on his part. And you've brought it up again and again. You say you've raised the subject again of your interest in him and he has rebuffed you and you actually made a move once and you say he didn't exactly push you away, which makes me think he kind of sort of pushed you away and you're interpreting his reaction to the move you made through the prism of your interest in him and your desire. And of course, all of us behave this way, our own desire to spare our own egos that he didn't really welcome the move that he didn't meet it. And that then your move didn't result in him making a counter move that resulted in your pants falling down and his pants falling down and you two winding up in bed together, that he may have been just polite enough to gradually disengage. And you have, and your dick has read that as slightly ambiguous or a sign that there may still be some, interest on his part. And I'm here to tell you that no, there is no interest here. You have lobbed the ball into his, both your balls into his side of the court again and again and again. And he has not returned the serve. If he was interested, he would do something about it. He's not interested. So you got to let it go. Let it go. You got to Elsa this, let it go. Stop making passes at this guy. And that's what you need to do. That's what you know you need to do. You say that, is that what you need to do here? And obviously it is what you need to do here. You had a crush on this guy when you were 10 and he was 30. If he's 20 years older than you are. I remember this guy, a friend of my uncle Jimmy's when I was a little boy that I had a crush on. I know what that prepubescent confusing crush is like. It's intoxicating. And, and I, you know, I imagine if that man had maintained a presence in my life and had been gay as well, that when I was, I don't know, 15 or 20, I might've made a pass at him. But if he had rebuffed me then, and again and again and again, I would stop making that pass at him. Stop, 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 stop. You're a 35-ish, mid-30s gay man. You need to get out there and you need to find someone who wants you the way you want them, who wants you the way you want to be wanted and deserve to be wanted. And this family friend and this bank shot non-blood relative, he ain't that guy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-something female living in the Southeast, and I have a question about opening up my relationship with my boyfriend. He and I have been together for two years, and we have a damn near perfect relationship, um, except for one glaring issue, which is that I recently found out that he has been 
romantically involved with another woman for the past two years, just over text, and they haven't seen each other, but he has been in love with her the entirety of our relationship and did not tell me or ask for my consent in pursuing that. And of course, that created a lot of conflict, a lot of confusion, especially because I have expressed being open to Polly several times in our relationship, so I was just blown away that he never brought it up. I found out incidentally, and we've worked out all of the betrayal in couples counseling, and we are talking about opening up our relationship, and I am just at a loss for whether this can even work, given that I don't like this woman. I don't appreciate what she did. I don't appreciate what he did with her. Polly requires a lot of honesty and communication and trust. And I know that she is literally the only person he wants to be Polly with. He's expressed that to me. I don't know if I'm going to be okay with it. And I guess I just want some perspective about whether you think this is doomed to failure at the outset uh, whether this is something that I can learn to live with, whether it's even worth the emotional labor. You say it's a damn near perfect relationship. You also say that you were open to Polly and you had raised the subject of being Polly early in the relationship. Seems to me that rather than wanting to punish him for having this existing relationship that, that that predates your presence in his life and not disclosing it. And maybe he rationalized not disclosing it because he'd never actually met this person. The entire relationship was conducted via text for all, you know, this is a, I don't know, a bot at an airline service desk. <laughs> well, I could see why he might be shy to share that with you or embarrassed to share that with you and kick that can down the road. And then it came out the way it came out and you've been to couples counseling and yeah, a poly relationship requires a lot of honesty, communication and trust. But sometimes, you know, a couple has to reverse engineer that honesty, communication and trust after an affair is disclosed. Talk a lot on this show about people who are, PUDs, poly under duress. Also, there are a lot of people out there in healthy, functional, open or poly relationships, and they're not the same thing, open and poly, but a lot of people out there in open and or poly relationships who got there, you know, by walking over coals, who got there because somebody cheated or had an ongoing emotional affair or sexual affair or affairs, and it blew up and the relationship that in every other aspect was damn near perfect was regarded by both parties as worth doing the work to save worth reverse engineering, a little honesty, communication and trust in part to allow for what the cheating partner had already been doing. And that can be a bit galling and the cheating partner needs to make amends and apologize and recognize how they aired and how they sinned. And the partner who was cheated on needs to get to a place where they can forgive. And I would think that would be an easier place for you to get to since you were always open to Polly. And what he did, what your partner did in not disclosing this to you was a little ridiculous. You know, maybe early on in the relationship, before you started talking about opening it up or being open to Polly at some point down the road, he just 
didn't disclose this because it's just kind of weird and he felt uncomfortable. And then by the time it was right to disclose it, then the fact that he hadn't disclosed it up to them became an issue and he hesitated and that can kept getting kicked further and further down the road. Well, now the can has no longer been kicked down the road. I guess it's sitting in the middle of the road and you two can look at it and address it. And the question you need to ask is not how he should be punished or whether you should allow him to continue to engage with this woman via text that he loves for the text messages. The question you should ask is whether he's worth it, whether you want to remain in this damn near perfect relationship with this guy that you love who was doing the entire time you were together, something that he could have, if he'd asked in advance, received your permission to do. All right, then. That should make extending to him your retroactive permission a little easier. Yes, a little galling. You'll have to get over that. He'll have to make amends. You'll have to get to a place where you can forgive him. But why? Why end a damn near perfect relationship? Because your partner was doing something that you would have given them permission to do if they'd only asked. And now you just need to forgive them for not having asked. And they need to apologize for not having asked for what you'd already given them permission to do. Ah, it's a little halls of mirrors e, And it seems to me that, that you should be able to get there. And since you don't have to interact with this woman, you say you don't like the woman sounds like more on principle because he was running around behind your back and maybe she knew that and that's humiliating, but she's not a physical presence. You don't have to you know, spend the holidays with her. You don't have to ever lay eyes on her. It doesn't sound like he's ever laid eyes on her. She's just a number on his phone. I think you should be able to get there, but if you can't, Go ahead, end it. Then vengeance is yours. And you're absolutely right. You should, you have every right to end it for any reason. And if you feel so violated by what he did that you want out, get the fuck out. But again, you will be ending what you described yourself. And I'm just quoting you back to you again for the millionth time. You will be ending a damn near perfect relationship. On principle, on a technicality. To prove something to him? At what cost, I would ask you, to you? Hi, Dan. I am a 31-year-old straight female calling from Australia. I'm recently single, and there's a few men that have been trying to get in touch with me, asking me to go for coffee, and I'm kind of running out of excuses, and I don't know what to tell them. I'm, I'm just not feeling their vibe. And the reason I'm calling is, because this particular man, I know he has a lot of mental issues, but he hasn't done anything specifically to me. So he just keeps trying and trying, and I'm just not sure what to do about it and, you know, how to kind of turn him down and let him know I'm not interested without hurting his feeling and possibly uh, making his mental condition worse or just reinforcing his belief that, you know, he has no value or whatever. So, yeah, I would love to get your advice on that, um, not just for this case, but just in general. How do you approach that situation? All right, Nancy, welcome back to the show. Longtime guest, eternal producer, Nancy Hartoon. Hi. So help me out here. I, I, I've 
so often said to women, just be direct. You don't have to create a way to let someone know that you're not interested in them. That spares their feelings. You have to just be direct about how you're feeling. And if they take that the wrong way or they have a big breakdown, that's not your responsibility. It's not. Yeah, it's not her problem. So it's what should her. she sound like? Let, let's can we role play? Sure. I'm the dude. All right. Ask I, me how. Any I haven't heard this in a long time. The dudes who called her. I don't believe that. But anyway, <laughs> any number of the dudes who called her like, hey, I hear you're single. Let's go out. Let's hang out. Let's go to a movie. Let's go to di-. However, it is that straight guys sound when they ask women out. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds pretty good. I might have to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to take you to a romantic dinner on a date <laughs> with some expectation that there may be sexual activity after. Would you care to join me? Oh my God, that is so flattering. Thank you. But you know what? I don't feel that way about you. And so that's not going to work for me. And I'm not going to change my mind. But thank you. You got all the way through that without using the word no. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, well. Let's take that again and be more direct. Okay. Hey, let's go to dinner. I'd like to take you to dinner and maybe like later we could. Later we could what? Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) I need something a little bit more specific than dot, 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 sir. Later, I could go down on you, maybe. Uh, I'm going to have to say no to that one. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're going to hurt my feelings. Don't be such a bitch. Yeah, well, I'm only getting started. (laughs) Why do women do this? I mean, women are socialized to defer to men, to prioritize men's feelings over there, and we know why they do it. But... Women get in this position where they can't say no to a guy or they feel like they shouldn't say no to a guy. They have to figure out a way to say no to a guy that's not going to hurt his feelings or in this case, exacerbate his mental illness as a consideration. Do women wind up married to men in this circumstance for 60 years because they never say no to them? They can't figure out how to say no to them? How many bad dates, how much bad sex do women have, consent to having just to avoid the word no? Yeah, it's scary to say no. It is. I mean, just now when we were role playing, it was scary. Yeah, it's true. I don't know like if how it starts, but it's really pernicious and it's really built in. But um, it's really hard to be impolite and blunt and say no to a man. Yeah, but we got it. We got to do it. You got to do it. I mean, part of it. Part of what informs that fear, of course, is the fear of male violence, which is not an irrational fear. Men are, as we've discussed, testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Uh, women are at great risk. Women who are murdered likely to be murdered by romantic partners, boyfriends, husbands, even guys who are just interested in them romantically. So figuring out a way to handle that, to diffuse what could be in a worst case scenario, a, a real problem of violent, you know, a violent reaction. I totally understand that. But if you feel like you can be direct and the only reason you're not being direct is to spare his feelings Don't spare his feelings. Yeah, I think the very first step is to let go of the idea that you give a shit about his feelings. And the second step could be just doing what I'm doing right now and like literally practice using your words and saying no. It's like it's I used to teach self-defense and and half the class was was just talking. You know, we didn't even get to the punching and the kicking stuff. So much of it is learning how to communicate directly without any speck of ambiguity about it. And it's hard to do. And it, it, sometimes it takes practice. And maybe it helps to think about that the guys who react badly to hearing no are the guys who need to hear it, who need more practice hearing no. And the guys who can take a no and react like a mature adult aren't guys you need to worry about saying no to. So there's only two types of guys in this equation, guys who need to hear no 
clearly and more often to get over it and guys who you don't have to worry about a bad reaction from when they hear no because they're already adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, j- just one more question. No. Uh, all right. I guess that's the end of the interview. <laughs> you were saying earlier you have a hard time sometimes yourself saying no. And I'm sitting here like, Nancy says no to me all the time. No to that guest. <laughs> no to that topic for the opening of the show. You have no problem saying no to me. You have a lot of practice. You're one of those men that, that can hear no. Hi, Dan. 26-year-old queer female from the Midwest here with a question about what I have come to think of as some kind of gay imposter syndrome that I've been experiencing. Um, A little bit of background. I have never thought of myself as straight. I know I've always been attracted to women, but I have dated exclusively men for the majority of my life. But now I have my first girlfriend. We've been together about six months and it's truly the happiest I've ever been in my life. I feel emotionally fulfilled. We have great intellectual conversation, which is important to me. And we have fantastic sex. The problem is that I have been having some intrusive thoughts or anxieties that I'm faking being gay or that I am doing it for attention, which is not true. I enjoy sleeping with my girlfriend and I feel romantic feelings towards her. So I know it's not true, but I can't figure out why I feel like this. So if you have any thoughts or if you have any listeners with similar experiences, please let me know. Huh. It's usually queer women or bi women or pan women who are with men who feel like they're imposters or are treated like they're not really queer by other queer people. So it's interesting to get a call from a woman who has exclusively up to this, until you entered this relationship, dated men. And now you're in a relationship with a woman. You've identified as queer all along. And when you were with men, you didn't have these anxieties about not being queer. You were queer identified all along. And now that you're with a woman, you're experiencing these anxieties about you're somehow faking it. And the only person it seems that's giving you any grief about this is you. If you identify this as an intrusive thought, you could work with a cognitive behavioral therapist. They're very good. CBT, that kind of CBT is actually very good with unwelcome and intrusive thoughts. Or you could just wait it out, give yourself a break. This is a new relationship for you. You've never been in a relationship with a woman. It's the most fulfilling relationship of your life. And Ah, I don't know. Maybe it's you that needs to prove to yourself that this isn't just a walk on the wild side, that you're not actually in this relationship just to prove something to yourself. Because if you were in it just to prove something to yourself, then that might, you know, sandpaper a nerve that makes you feel like a little bit of an imposter or a fraud because you were only doing this to earn your queer bona fides or bona fides, depending on how you pronounce that. Uh, but that's not the case. I, I'm not suggesting that's the case here. I'm just trying to get inside your head and identify the little devil that's sitting on your shoulder, that's whispering in your ear that this isn't who you are, isn't your authentic 
sexuality when you know it to be your authentic sexuality. I assume you say it's a loving and wonderful relationship. I assume the sex is great too and that you're really enjoying this. So maybe you just need to give it a little bit more time and maybe that voice inside your head will shut the fuck up. Might help if you stopped referring to yourself as gay. You describe yourself as queer and then you say maybe you're not really gay. Well, you're not gay. Gay in the sense of exclusively being attracted to members of your own sex. You've been with men. You're with a woman. You're queer. Uh, maybe bi or pan would feel less of an awkward fit of a label if you started using that to refer to yourself instead of gay. Anyway, my advice, give it time. And if that doesn't work or you don't have the patience to give this a little bit more time, make a couple of appointments with a cognitive behavioral therapist, three or four, not endless cycles of therapy. You're not going into therapy for the rest of your life. Don't worry about the never ending expense of seeing a therapist eternally. You just want to go to see a CBT therapist to work on controlling, conquering, cornering this unwelcome and intrusive thought, the thought that you are not who you know yourself to be 100% authentically queer. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. 39-year-old caller from the West Coast, hetero, cis. So right off the bat, I just want to state that I do recognize personal and professional boundaries, and that might even be the cause for many missed opportunities in life. And uh, I've also been single for far longer than I care to have been at this point or continue to be at this point. So back in shelter in place uh, in an effort to have some sort of erotic activity going on in my life, I began posting anonymous nude photos to a website. Upon admitting that to my therapist at the time, she seemingly joking, uh, joked about wanting to see the the pictures or wanting to see the link to the website. Uh, My natural response was to laugh it off and to continue with the thought that I was trying to get out in the moment. Although since that moment, I've wanted to circle back and I never did. You know, it's a a moment that I have kind of fixated or fantasized on maybe kind of wanting to see if there's some truth in what she's saying or some interest, I guess, in me. And I don't know. Anyway, so here I am six months later uh, after discontinuing sessions, just a single and considering slash fantasizing about sending her a link via email. I guess my questions are, is it possible that she wasn't joking? If I send her a message with a NSFW type of warning and a gentle reminder of her request, am I violating any boundaries? Which I know is highly likely. Uh, is it less creepy if I, you know, not anonymously reach out and remind her of that moment and extend the offer? Is there a way to make my fantasy a reality without being a fucking creep? Okay. It would be fucking creepy and inappropriate for you to email your old therapist and offer to share your nudes with her. But it was fucking creepy and inappropriate of your old therapist while you were her client or patient to even jokingly suggest when you opened up to her about what you were doing during the pandemic to have a little eroticism in your life that she wanted to see your photos. So I guess on the creepy and inappropriate front, 
your creepy and inappropriate move would just be matching her creepy and inappropriate opening salvo and you would be even it would be wrong but she was in the wrong too she introduced into your relationship with her into this professional relationship the possibility of getting to see your junk and yeah maybe she was joking but you know what they say often in therapy about jokes is you know people joke about the things that they want to have happen or wish were true or would like to have happen and then try to pass it off as a joke you're an adult she's an adult she is no longer your therapist you are no longer her client it would be very inappropriate for you to send an old doctor an old teacher an old therapist your unsolicited nude photographs but she kind of solicited them in that moment These wouldn't be unsolicited dick pics. They would be mildly solicited dick pics. I think if you were going to send them to her, you should ask her if she would like you to send the link. Don't send her the link. Don't send her the photographs. Oh, my God. Don't enclose the photographs. Don't text her the photographs. Just say, you know, you said that thing. It's been sitting in my mind all this time. We no longer have a professional relationship or a patient-client relationship. And so dot, dot, dot. I was wondering dot, dot, dot. You could do that. No, your question was, would this be a creepy and inappropriate thing to do? And my answer from the very start is, yeah, yeah, that would be a totally fucking creepy and inappropriate thing to do. But it wouldn't be any more creepy and inappropriate than the thing that she already did. In fact, I would say it would be less creepy and less inappropriate than the thing she already did. She was the professional and she was the therapist when she said the creepy and inappropriate thing that she said to you. So I guess you have my blessing to go ahead and do this. But just for the record, my blessing doesn't make this creepy and inappropriate thing any less creepy and inappropriate than it is. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old gay man living in the Northeast. I have recently been in a friends with benefits type of situation with a coworker of mine. Uh, and this is the first time I've ever done anything remotely sexual or romantic with a coworker because I know it can get messy. And lo and behold, this has. Both him and I have a really great friendship with each other. We have a great deal of respect for one another. And we've had really great sex, but I have caught feelings that are stronger than the feelings that he has for me. And I've expressed this before, and we've taken time away from each other and set up boundaries with each other and established that, you know, we can't be in a a relationship that's long-term. But I still find myself having these feelings and constantly thinking about this person. I open up Instagram and see a post from him, and I just have a knee-jerk reaction to that. I get upset or find myself in my feelings. Um, When I see him at work, I just revert back to the same flirtation and the same kind of interactions that we used to have. So I guess I'm curious if I should just cut off this, relationship altogether to kind of 
preserve myself from more pain and more uh, hurt or if I should, you know, just kind of get over it and, and see where it goes and still be professional at work and, you know, hang out with him outside of work. Well, yes, obviously you should still be professional at work and you can't avoid him at work and you can't avoid the reminder when you see him and you still have this rapport and this flirty rapport with him that he rejected you. Essentially you caught feelings for him. You went from a friends with benefits arrangement to at least in your heart and your imagination uh, of a future. You went to something more and he obviously shut that down. You brought that up and he told you that he didn't, have the same feelings for you that you had for him and I guess couldn't imagine himself ever developing those sorts of feelings or wouldn't allow himself to develop those sorts of feelings. And so from the sound of things, you ended the sexual relationship, but you still have this professional relationship. You have to interact at work. You don't, however, have to open your Instagram and see his fucking face. You don't have to block him. You don't have to unfollow him. You can mute him on Instagram. You can, in your settings, make his posts uh, not appear in your feed. Uh, that way, every once in a while, when you're not feeling so heartsick and you just want to look at his posts and throw down a few likes so he still knows that you're following him, you can do that. But otherwise, you won't be ambushed. You know, first thing in the morning, you won't have to look at his face while you're using the bathroom or when you're feeling down. Or low, which sometimes opening up Instagram doesn't help anybody with, you won't be confronted with pictures of him enjoying his life that he made clear to you that he didn't want to share with you in the same way you were tempted or, or wanted to share your life with him. I would advise you to do that. Mute his posts on Instagram and only look at his posts or his feed when you're feeling strong. You should, however, circle back to him and say, you know, we ended our sexual relationship because I violated the sacred terms of the FWB arrangement by catching feelings, which is a thing that happens and a risk we all take in FWB relationships. But we have reverted at work to our kind of flirtatious rapport and that hurts my feelings. So we're both going to have to make an effort not to go there, not to be flirty or dirty or sexual with each other, not to like toss back and forth those innuendos that gay guys often do with their friends and their fuck buddies and their former fuck buddies. And we're just going to have to like make an effort not to do that because through no fault of your own and, and through no fault of my own, we've been doing this together. It It is hurting my my feelings. It's making you feel freshly rejected each and every time it happens. If he's a kind person, and I assume because you caught feelings for him, he is a kind person, even if he couldn't reciprocate the feelings that you have for him, he'll make an effort to squelch that. And you, you, for your own sake, you need to make an effort to squelch it yourself. If he starts to get flirty with you, don't engage in the same way. Maybe give him a look like, hey, remember, we're not going to do this anymore. And mute him. Mute that motherfucker. Don't dump that motherfucker. Don't, you don't have to treat He's not even a motherfucker. But just mute him. Mute him on Instagram. So you're not having to look at him every day. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry you got your heart broke. It's a risk we all take, whether we're dating 
and open to all possibilities or were attempting to set limits, like calling it an FWB arrangement. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and it's Debbie at Rescue. I'm a cisgender, heterosexual female living in the East Coast. I just have a quick dating question for you. Uh, recently, I wanted to date with this guy, and we got pretty close on the first day and connected, and we're open with each other about our sexual interests and fetishes, and we both found out we were compatible in, like, Dom subplay, and he sent you the Dom, and he felt comfortable enough to open up with me what his fetish was, and he said that he's into people throwing up. And I'm not one to shame kind of fetishes, and I just wanted to ask you if you've heard of anything like this before or if you could think of any reason why, like, somebody who is a dom would have a fetish like this. I enjoyed spending time with this guy, and I've considered going on a couple more dates with him. Uh, I just am not sure if it's weird or will work or be compatible to be with somebody that has a fetish that I think is gross. All right. A week or two ago, I took a call from someone who was worried about throwing up during oral sex. And that was, of course, something they desperately wanted to avoid. It's something most of us desperately want to avoid. And now here comes your call to remind us that the things that discussed most people, some people are desired by others because our erotic imaginations are limitless and perverse and ever surprising. Okay. Well, I was just talking about having pizza, then performing oral sex and throwing pizza up all over somebody's dick and lap. And that being not ideal, not something you would want to do, not something a person would want to happen to them. And of course, then comes your call. And it is something that some people want to do, or in the case of the Dom that you went on that date with, want to induce, want to force someone else to do. And that's obviously what's in it for him, that this plays into his Dom sub kink, his dominant desires to top someone, to, to throat fuck someone to the point where they have lost control, where he forces them to vomit. Yeah. Is it weird? Of course it's weird. It's rare. It's not normal in the sense that it's not normative, but it's definitely a kink that some people have. It even has a name, has two names, emitophilia, also reflexophilia. Some people are into it. I think with the ubiquity of uh, online porn now, a little bit like choking, online porn may have made reflexophilia or emetophilia a little more popular than it once was because people will encounter images and pornography featuring people inducing this. And not just men doing it to women, but men doing it to men. And I've even seen a couple of examples of women with strap-ons forcing their male partners to vomit. Not my scene, not something I would enjoy, not something I would want to have happen to my dick, but my dick ain't his dick and his dick is okay. Not anything that you want to do or, or be forced to do, but can you make it work with someone who has a fetish that you find gross? Well, yeah, yeah, of course you can. So long as you don't have to engage in it. And so long as the fetish isn't so disgusting that it's kind of a libido killer for you to contemplate the fact that your partner either wants to do this uh, and isn't able to do it with you if you're in a monogamous exclusive relationship or wants to do this and is doing it with others and then coming home to you. Now, I, I think if it's something like, you know, foot worship or even piss play that your partner doing that with others, eh, not something that should kill your libido. 
But there are some things that maybe are so extreme. You know, if your partner's into eating shit, you don't want to do that. You don't want to shit in their mouth, but they're going out and other people are shitting in their mouths and then they're coming home and planting a kiss on you. I could see why that would be a libido killer. I would see why just an assurance that they flossed and brushed before they came home wouldn't cut it. Wouldn't get you there. Wouldn't get you to a place where you can make it work with someone who has a fetish that you find gross. That one might be a fetish too far. But that your boyfriend is kind of into throat fucking someone until they retch. Maybe not hurling up clam chowder and pizza, but hurling up bile and spittle. That he wants to do that, but doesn't get to do that with you. Maybe does that with other people if the relationship is open and you don't have to be there. You don't have to listen. You don't have to watch. You don't have to participate. Yeah, maybe you could make that work. But you aren't obligated to make that work. And if this is just too much for you, yeah, you can just uh, peace out. Don't ghost. Ghosting's rude. Even ghosting reflexophiliacs is rude. Ghosting immunophiliacs is rude. Send him a text. Tell him it was nice to meet him, but you don't think you're a match if indeed you feel that way. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with my partner of seven years. She has another partner, and they've been together for about one and a half years, during which she and I were mostly long distance. Now, the three of us live in the same city and are practicing more of a kitchen table polyamory dynamic. Her other partner and I are on good terms, although we are still working through our respective anxieties and insecurities and aren't quite 100% at ease with each other, but things are improving. My question, though, is about hickeys. Personally, I hate hickeys. They make me anxious. I don't want them on my body, and I don't like how they attract attention. And they also feel like a kind of branding, albeit temporary. I can understand that these same reasons are why others might like hickeys, whether receiving or giving them. So hickeys are not part of my personal romantic routine. However, they are a part of my partner's and her other partner's romantic routine. Recently, for example, she spent the night at her other partner's house and came back with about half a dozen hickeys across the top of her back. The reality is that it bothers me to see those hickeys. Maybe part of it is my own anxieties around getting hickeys, but more so I think those hickeys are a reminder of her other partner. Seeing them makes me think of him or her and him so they can add an unwanted psychological dimension to our romantic life when we are being intimate. It doesn't feel right to tell my partner not to get hickeys from our other partner, but they are discomforting. Should I just get used to it, or do you think it is okay to talk to her about her hickey habits and ask that she tries to avoid them? You say you're moving into kitchen table polyamory, that kind of dynamic. Uh, What that means is, you know, everyone's cool and comfortable with each other. Sometimes everyone has a meal together, sits down together. Uh, I often think of when people say kitchen table polyamory, to me, that suggests everyone waking up in the same house and rolling into the kitchen and, and hanging out the various partners and it just being casual and comfortable. And then you say that this reminder that your partner, your female partner, has another partner, a male partner, this physical reminder, this visual reminder makes you uncomfortable because it makes it hard for you, I guess, to pretend that you're her only partner, that she isn't off being intimate with this other person that she enjoys different kinds of sex practices with, which makes me wonder how much practice you've got at this kitchen table polyamory dynamic. Because really sitting down for breakfast with your partner's partner 
is a very visual, tactile reminder that your partner has other partners. So I would urge you to really think about and confront that. How comfortable are you in this kind of polyamorous relationship where you have some sort of connection with your partner's partner and your partner's partner is a presence in your life and not an abstraction that you can suspend your disbelief about and pretend doesn't exist. You all live in the same city now. You're sharing the same space. At times, you and he are sharing the same vaginal canal. You're sharing the same girlfriend. That said, your feelings are your feelings and you can own your feelings. And I think you should be able to talk with your partner about this, your primary partner, your girlfriend about these feelings that, you know, you see the hickeys and obviously it's calling something up for you, some jealousy or possessiveness or something, some lingering desire to have a one penis policy or to have a exclusive relationship. And you should confront those feelings head on. Perhaps you could ask for some consideration of your insecurities as you work through this. Maybe they can dial the hickeys back. You may hear from your partner that the location of the hickeys right now on the back as opposed to on the neck or somewhere else that's more visually apparent as you face your partner was an attempt to, you know, for her to have her hickeys and for him to have hickeys with her without them being the only thing you saw when you looked at her or you and she were fucking around and making love, maybe they were trying to be considerate of your distaste for hickeys by putting them someplace that in the right positions and at the right times and in the dark, perhaps you wouldn't have to look at. You may need from them for now a bit more of an accommodation, a little bit more consideration for your insecurities as you work through this, but I would challenge you to work through this. I think it is revealing, if not problematic, that you say you're practicing a kitchen table, polyamory dynamic, and yet the issue here at bottom with these hickeys is that you are reminded that your partner has another partner. Something to think about, something to process. You know, polyamorous people love their processing, our processing. I'm a polyamorous person myself. Something to process with your partner and perhaps your partner's partner as well. But I think the problem is yours, not theirs. Hi, I'm 43. I'm a cisgender straight woman. And for as long as I can remember, it kind of sometimes when I have to pee really badly, feels very, very good. I've never had an orgasm from this, but it's close and it can get me aroused. I wonder why this is, first of all, and and then also, am I potentially doing any damage when I purposely don't go and pee when I really need to pee sometimes because it feels kind of good? Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Ian Fields, a urogynecologist who specializes in pelvic floor disorders and bladder conditions. Hey, Dr. Fields, thanks for jumping on the phone this morning. Hey, Dan, thanks for having me again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. 
So you were recently in the column because I got a, a question from a woman who was holding it, who wasn't peeing when she needed to pee, but not for her own pleasure. She was in what sounded to me and to you and to another guest expert like an abusive relationship. Her husband never wanted her to pee unless he was watching and she would hold it all night and was in a lot of pain all the time. And your advice was this was dangerous. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, holding urine in for that long of a period of time. So she was talking about, you know, holding it while she had the urge to go overnight. She would hold it overnight. She would hold it all day. That kind of holding pattern is not good for your bladder. It certainly can predispose you to recurrent bladder infections is the most worrisome thing because urine that stays around for long periods of time is just sort of like a culture broth for bacteria. And so it basically just allows the bacteria to replicate and replicate. And that bacteria can even travel up to your kidneys in worst cases, causing kidney infections, potentially scarring and long-term kidney damage. So in that case, that's that's something I would not recommend regularly doing. You can also get bladder disorders like urge incontinence. You can have stretch injuries to the bladder to where your bladder may not even recover some function over time. All right. So this is a different case. This is a woman who's not holding it for hours and hours and hours or overnight because her husband's an abusive monster. This is a woman who's holding it in a little bit once in a while because it kind of turns her on to feel, I guess, that pressure. Maybe the pressure is pushing against the, you know, the internal part of her clitoris down there. I don't know. I don't know what my theory is. Or maybe it's just the sensation is she running a risk here? Is there a way to do this safely in moderation or should we all be running to the toilet the minute we sense we want to pee? So actually, it, it's quite the opposite. In fact, you, you when you first get the sensation to pee, you can actually fool your bladder into holding smaller and smaller amounts of urine over time. So listening to your bladder right away sometimes isn't the greatest thing to do. You know, in this case with this woman and, and her feelings of, arousal of some sort or this tingling sensation, there certainly is biologic plausibility to all of that. There's a lot of crosstalk between the nerves that regulate a lot of the sensation down in the area that we call the perineum, which is the area that sort of surrounds the vagina, the vulva, the rectum, um, and the clitoris even. So there's this nerve called the pudendal nerve that regulates a lot of the sensation both to the clitoris also to the urethra, also to the pelvic floor, and even some parts of the rectum and the anus. So it's it's certainly plausible that there is some crosstalk that's happening once these nerves get stretched and activated to where she is experiencing this tingling sensation and sexual arousal. And in fact, there was a viral Reddit thread that went about the internet a couple of years back about this exact thing. Um, and so, you know, holding period, holding urine for short periods of time probably isn't going to do you any lasting damage. And certainly if it's something that gives you a little bit of sexual arousal, holding for 30 minutes to an hour probably isn't going to do you much damage. So 30 minutes to an hour after you have that first sensation uh, or, you know, the sense that you need to urinate, that's different by degree to holding it for eight hours because your husband's a tyrant and a monster and you're afraid of him. Yes, correct. For many, <laughs> for many different reasons, but yeah, holding it for short periods of time, isn't going to be, isn't going to predispose you to large amounts of urine in the bladder and these recurrent infections. You know, the more you're, the, the longer you hold it, the more urine that's there, the more urine that's there, the more likely you are to predispose yourself to these recurrent bladder infections. So, 
no so, no lasting damage that I would anticipate from this type of practice. So uh, with this caller, with her question, as with so many other things that we talk about on this show, moderation and all things, including moderation. Every once in a while, you can go to town, but be moderate about it. <laughs> that's exactly it. All things in moderation, for sure. Including moderation. I think that's an important qualifier to the end of that. All things exactly. in moderation. Every once in a while, you need to go. I think as humans, every once in a while, we need to push those limits. We need to go a little overboard. We need to see, uh, you know, we need to push ourselves uh, to sometimes even a little bit of a, a, a physical extreme. But we want to do so in a way that doesn't permanently injure our internal organs, especially if we're only doing that to avoid the wrath of our asshole husband. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Dr. Ian Fields, a urogynecologist. Thank you for demeaning yourself by coming on my sex podcast after you demeaned yourself by agreeing to uh, allow me to quote you in my sex advice column. I really appreciate it. Always happy to be there for you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 55-year-old straight divorced male in an 18-month-long relationship with a 55-year-old straight divorced woman who I met online during COVID. We are both professional, healthy, super active, and athletic with no obvious sexual problems. I'm strongly attracted to her in all ways, love our sex, and we get along extremely well, spending two nights together per week usually. I love being with her. We have great conversations, lots of affection, and I love being her partner, and she says she loves being mine. She'll move, move to a new city 800 miles away in about a year and talks about me coming with her. Our sex life started out hot, frequent and orgasmic for her, but it seems to have lost steam for her around the 9 to 10 month mark. Difficulty orgasming, and it feels like sex has become more of a relationship duty for her than a pleasure. During sex now, she will often say, I want you to come after just a few minutes. In the moment, I express a desire to please her, and she says that she is just fine, insisting that she does not need to come. Because sex and our mutual pleasure is so important to me, this makes me sad and anxious. Our relationship has honestly been the most treasured, peaceful, agreeable, and fun relationship of my life, and I want to make it work. When I try to talk about it, she becomes frustrated and says that pressure and expectations kill her desire. She specifically said that the idea of working at it was antithetical to the act of sex. I come from a background of uh, repression and sex shaming and um, have been working really hard to get out of this and really was hoping this relationship would be that. So when you try to talk with her about sex, she says working at it isn't something that she wants to do. Working at it is antithetical to the idea of sex, but it's not working at it you're asking her to do in those moments. It's talking with you about it, talking with you about the difference now, what changed, what, if anything, you can do to make sex as enjoyable for her now as it was at the start of the relationship, or for at least her to give you some information, some reassurance. Maybe this is just how her sexuality works. Maybe she's one of those fearful and dreaded and awesome and amazing for asexuals we've heard so much about lately. And the longer she's with someone, although she's not with you a tremendous amount of time, two nights a week over a year and a half, but maybe the longer she's with someone, sex declines. Maybe there's a coincidence here. She's 55 years old. Maybe she's going through a stage of menopause and it's impacting her libido or her ability to climax. And it's something that she's discussed with her doctor but hasn't discussed with you because even 
a year and a half in, she doesn't feel close enough to you to discuss this with you if it is indeed a medical issue. What you have to decide is whether you're going to upend your life to follow this woman to the city that she's moving to in a year's time if this doesn't change or it continues to get worse where she's going through the motions, having sex with you out of a sense of duty, and that makes sex less desirable or pleasurable for you because you want her to enjoy it too. You want her to be into it too. You want her pleasure to be a part of it. You take pleasure in giving her pleasure and she's not getting any pleasure out of sex anymore. There's a lot that works about this relationship. Peaceful, agreeable, fun. You have great conversations. All of that, I assume, is still great and still working. So... I guess you could adjust your expectations. You could regard the great, crazy, fun, mutually orgasmic sex you had in the first nine months or year as past, as a stage the relationship went through, as something that you that won't come back, that you have you won't be able to expect that anymore. And you won't, you know, perhaps after a brief period of mourning, you won't grieve it anymore or try to do anything about it anymore, and you will accept from her. The maintenance sex, the flashlight routine, whatever it is that she's been giving you the last 10 months, 12 months, 14 months or so, and be happy with it. But if you couldn't accept that, if you can't be happy with that, and I don't think I could be happy with that, it might be foolish to follow her to this new city. It might be foolish to stay in this relationship and force it and try to make it work or become increasingly resentful over time about what isn't working. If sex is important to you in your committed relationship, you don't want to have an open relationship. You don't want to seek passionate NRE, new relationship energy, sex outside this relationship, and then go home to this wonderful, lovely woman that you have these peaceful, agreeable conversations with. Yeah. Yeah. Then you should probably let this run its course. And when she leaves, take that opportunity to, end this relationship and regard it as a successful short-term relationship you had after your divorce and then move on and find a new girlfriend and start over. Hi, Dan. Last weekend was my daughter's eighth birthday party and she got a fish tank. The next day when I set it up in her room, I sent a picture to my family text chat with only my brothers, sisters, mom, and dad not on social media and private. In the picture, she was standing next to the fish tank. It did not have a shirt on, but she's only eight years old. No budding breasts or anything at her age now. The next day, my mother sends this direct quote to the family chat. Quote, I must say that the photo of a topless child with her fish tank is a bit disturbing. Nudity is not a problem, but a near pubescent girl brazenly displaying her chest brings a concern that the child has no idea of what events her behavior could precipitate. My main concern is that children taught to question their sex have a great chance of falling victim to the innumerable variety of predators. Also, scientific fact that a person's healthy development is arrested with early introduction of sexual experiences. End quote. Of course, I was shocked that my mom looked at a picture of her eight-year-old granddaughter standing next to a fish tank smiling innocently and turned it into something completely sexual. 
Not to mention she's assuming a lot in that message. What the fuck? I have been doing my best to raise my daughter to not be ashamed of her body and what she looks like, knowing that as she continues to grow into a woman, there is plenty of body judgment she will be exposed to. When I told my partner about my mom's message, he suggested we not invite her back to our home ever again. This may seem a little drastic, but it's because at my child's birthday party, he overheard my mother doing her usual poor behavior, insulting my dad, who was sitting right near her, making racist comments about people she saw on the airplane and how they made her feel nervous. She clearly has been blasting too much Fox News in her house, and you can probably surmise she brought us up in a very strict religious home. But what are your thoughts? My daughter is just barely eight. She's a second grader and still flat-chested, innocent kid. When I sent the picture, I thought of it along the same lines as sending pictures of kids in a bubble bath and playing nothing sexual. And I'm very pissed that she's shoving negative sexuality into a space where it does not belong. Should I cut her out? Am I overreacting? Tell me what you think, Dan. I and my sisters can't wait to hear your response. Wow. My thought. Leave your mom off group texts in the future. You might want to still invite your horrible mother to family events to keep the peace and try to build a bit of an asbestos emotional firewall around her to limit the damage she might do. But yeah, that message from your mother is unhinged your daughter brazenly exposing herself your daughter who is eight years old inviting sexual assault by being shirtless in a photograph that her mother took and there's also the insinuation which is straight out of fox news right now that you're somehow confusing this child about her gender identity because shirtlessness is for boys not for girls yeah your mother is fucking nuts. Now, a lot of eight-year-old girls are already self-conscious about going shirtless. Shirtlessness, little girls, three, four, five years old, unself-conscious about it. But the world so sexualizes girls that even by eight, nine, ten, that stage of prepubescence, some girls are self-conscious about it. Hopefully your daughter is not self-conscious about you sending at age eight a shirtless photo of her off to her aunts and uncles and grandparents. And I would factor into, you know, your own review of this event, of your actions, of the photo that you sent, your daughter's feelings, which you don't bring up. But I assume your daughter beaming in this photograph, knowing you were taking the photograph of her with the fish tank, wasn't at all self-conscious. A moment with your mother, however, could make her incredibly self-conscious. And oh my God, the things your mother's insinuating here about your daughter's agency, intention. Yeah, your mother is a fucking psycho, a racist fucking psycho who is not kind to other members of your family. You don't have to invite her to any future events or invite her only to major ones that it would be awkward or, you know, potentially incendiary or upset other members of the families that you want to keep the peace with if you didn't invite her. But yeah, at the very least, the very least, leave this woman off group texts in the future. Hi, Dan. I am a 29-year-old woman living in the Pacific Northwest. My very close friend was dating someone for the past few years. My relationship was a little bit 
toxic and definitely got more unhealthy during COVID. Um, but we all knew him and we had all spent time with him and he was a very um, charming and complicated person. But it recently came out on an anonymous Instagram page that reports about um, harm and abusers in our city that both before and while they were together, he was not only cheating on her, but actually had raped multiple women in our city um, and had sexually abused and otherwise was very aggressive, not respecting boundaries with many others, which he did admit to when confronted, um, found most of these people on dating apps. None of us had any idea that this was happening. So this is really alarming for my friend, obviously, but for our entire friend group to try to process. And I guess I'm just looking for advice on, I don't know, like the best way to handle this. I think everyone is sort of like spinning in their fear because it's a really scary situation. We want to protect other women in our community while also like not knowing the best way to go about that. This Instagram page is a good resource, but it is private. And I just, I don't know how many people it reaches. I don't know if there is like, I don't know, like someone we should report this to, or I guess just like, yeah, I don't know. How do we handle this? If this man has raped multiple women, violated people's boundaries up to and including the ultimate violation of a boundary and raped multiple women, I would think that you would report him to the police. The police are the people that he should be reported to, not an anonymous Instagram account. Take this to the police. Encourage the women who are posting about their experiences with this man, the times this man has raped them, to go to the authorities, to file a police report, to have him arrested and prosecuted. This question comes up every once in a while, or variations on what's at the heart of this question. Someone I know is dating someone who turns out to be a terrible person, to have engaged in illegal activities, to have violated people, or just to have been, in some cases, just a super shitty, emotionally abusive, manipulative asshole of a partner. And what do we do now to protect other women? You know, there's what you'd like to do and there's what you can do. And sometimes it's frustrating when what you can do falls far short of what you'd like to do. Ideally, you would like to protect all women everywhere for all time from this man. Unfortunately, that's probably not possible. It's not what you can do because you're not going to be able to run interference for the rest of this man's life for the next 30, 40, 50 years, assuming he gets out of prison at some point, if somebody files a fucking police report and has him arrested for the rapes that he's committed, you're not going to be able to be one step ahead of him for the rest of his life, warning off any woman that he may encounter years from now and letting her know that, that she in danger, girl, you're not going to be able to, to, to do that. What you can do is make sure that the women that you know, women in your social circles, women in your communities who may know this person, women who may know that you and your other friends at this group of people, your social circle, that you guys were hanging out with this guy and may not have gotten 
the memo or seen the Instagram page set to private and so may not now know that you guys have cut this guy out and may infer from the fact that you used to be hanging out with this guy that he's okay because he was, didn't I see him out with, you know, Susie and Carol and Bob and Ted and Alice? Well, he must be a good guy because I know that they're good people. You don't want anyone to make those kinds of assumptions based on your past association with this guy. So you can get out in front of that. You can, don't call it a whisper network, bullhorn network. You can let people know. You can spread the word and reach the people that you can reach. Not all the people you'd like to reach. Not all the women that he may encounter over the decades of life that he has left. But certainly you can warn the women that you know and the women who know women you know and ask the men that you know to warn the women that they know about this guy and about what he's done so that he can't victimize anybody that you know or anybody who knows someone that you know because you activated the bullhorn network. But to do what you'd really like to do, to protect all women from this man going forward for all time, uh, as frustrating as it is to say, and as much as I hate to be the bearer of sad news, you probably can't do that. But if he has raped multiple women, you could. Get him off the streets for a while. You could, if somebody goes to the police and files a police report, get this motherfucker arrested and thrown in jail. All right, before we get to this week's response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Wake up song tweets for the 23-year-old gay virgin caller. I went to college just before the AIDS crisis and knew a lot of guys who thought the party hookup drug scene was the only gay lifestyle. One close friend despaired of ever having a real relationship, a husband, children. The reality and the perception were as different then as they are now. What you want is out there. Never fear. Sissy Nada 225 tweets, also for the 23-year-old caller who was worried about being gay and a virgin at his age. I didn't come out until I was in my late 30s. Didn't fuck a man until more than a year later. At Fake Dan Savage is right. Gay guys understand what it's like to be a late bloomer. You got this. And finally, as you like it, shop tweets. Hashtag Savage Lovecast, episode 780, reminded us that we'd all like to avoid any booty-related ER visits right now. As You Like It is Eugene and Ashland, Oregon's gender-inclusive, body-positive, sex-positive, and environmentally conscious sex toy shops. And that tweet that they sent out included As You Like It's pro tips for ass toys, flared bases, and how to know when that flared base is flared enough, along with a link to their really helpful and informative guide, to anal adventures, which you can find at their website, as you like it shop.com. All right. Thanks to everyone who posted to your social media about the show this week. We really appreciate it. And if you want me to possibly read your tweet on next week's Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now listener response calls. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to your discussion with the caller who wants to wait to tell his wife that he's planning to file for divorce. I think that there seem to be some controlling aspects to this situation. If his wife were aware of his plans, she could control, first of all, how her holidays go and have some say in that with full knowledge of what he's planned and that there will be a divorce. Additionally, it sounds like he's 
trying to control the property settlement itself. Maybe she doesn't want the proceeds of the house. Maybe she wants half of his retirement. This kind of thing is not going to be under his control. So I think he should rethink telling her sooner and letting the chips fall where they may. And maybe they can still have a holiday together. And certainly they can still sell this house together. Hi, this is a response call to the trans guy calling on episode 784 about hooking up with men from Grindr. I'm a bisexual trans guy and at this point I've had a lot of experience hooking up with men from the apps. I just want to say that I too was also really scared at the beginning. Um, But once you start hooking up with guys from the apps, it becomes easy. It's fun. It's not scary. Of course, be cautious. But keep in mind that as trans guys, we are highly desirable. We are very sexy. So no matter the situation, you are in control because they want you. Hey, Dan and everybody. This is a response call for the guy who was talking about wanting a word like neurodivergent to describe his uh, sexual interest and sexual kink. And I think that you answered your own question, my dude. And with the help of Dan, I mean, I think that kinky is the word that you're looking for. In the same way that neurodivergent doesn't cover specifically exactly your experience, but is, you know, you can sort of round up to what you're experiencing. I think that kinky, you know, doesn't give a ton of details specifically about your interest, but still describes you as maybe not exactly like somebody who's, quote, normal or average or whatever you might want to call people who are non-kinky. You know, so why not just embrace the word you've already got, kinky? And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's show or a comment about some of the advice I gave on this week's show? The best way to get us your questions and comments is to use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. We prefer those voice memos, better sound quality, but we love your calls however you get them to us. The deadline to submit to Hump 2022 is just one month away, so now is the time to grab a friend or several and make a sexy short film for next year's Hump Film Festival. As for our current 2021 edition, there are a couple of cities left on the tour in Olympia, Washington. It's screening there this weekend by you at the Capitol Theater on Saturday. Go to humpfilmfest.com now for all the info you need on getting tickets or making and submitting a film for Hump 2022. And with the holiday season upon us, a reminder that my new book, Savage Love from A to Z, is out now, so gift a loved one a copy today. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Ian Fields on Twitter at E-E-Y-A-N Miller. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thank you for doing